You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. Today's episode closes out our four-part mini-series on ESG. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, we would encourage you to jump over to those first. The first episode was an introduction to the concept of ESG overall. Episodes two and three were primarily focused on the E or environmental aspects. And today we round out the acronym by turning our focus and attention to the social and governance pieces. As you'll hear Adam say in the episode, governance is the driving force behind ESG efforts and is of utmost importance. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new. This is Sarah Cage Richter, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. And here to round out the ESG miniseries, we have the whole ESG squad back in the house. We've got Robbie Sunberg, Fabian Garavito, and Caroline Willett to help us cover the S and G of ESG. But before we jump in, Adam... The E seems to be getting most of the attention these days, (laughs) even as evidenced by our episode breakout. So why is that? Are the S and G, the redheaded stepchildren, are they less important? What's going on? (laughs) No, definitely not less important. And don't don't be uh, misled by us combining this into one discussion either today. Um, Obviously, there's been a lot of investor focus on environmental things. The SEC is that's kind of the first area they've holistically have proposed rules around. Um, but you know, social and societal, it, you know, issues and importance. It's it's still just as relevant. And for some companies, the E may not be as significant to them as some of their social initiatives. Don't be mistaken by the way we've structured it or kind of what you're hearing in the news that the S and G aren't as relevant. You know, I always think about the G as being the the overlord of the E and the S. If you don't have good governance, then any strategies you have around um, improving your environmental impact or social impact um, are likely to you know, fall to the wayside. I think that's really helpful. So let's give the S and G the space they deserve. And we'll start with the G side. Um, as Adam alluded to, it's the, the driver behind all of this. So I think most of us have a basic understanding of what is meant when we hear the term governance, but in the context of ESG, what are we exactly referring to? Sure. So the G in ESG is governance. Uh, Corporate governance and related issues encompasses a lot of different areas. Uh, So just to quickly hit on a few of of those areas. So it's one, it's issues and considerations related to the board uh, and management's oversight, uh, its makeup, its engagement on different issues. Uh, it's also ethics and compliance issues, uh, ensuring the company and its employees are operating ethically and in compliance with, with rules and regulations. Uh, it's also supply chain issues, ensuring supply chain is observing appropriate practices uh, when it comes to things like ethics and compliance, a little bit of overlap there, but really supply chain issues as it relates to ESG uh, more broadly. Um, obviously, that's not a all-inclusive list, but hopefully that's a helpful place to get us started and, and help our audience start thinking about governance. Yeah. And Robbie, when I'm when I hear like kind of the different categories, things that fall under governance, I mean, none of that stuff really surprises me, I would say. You know, it seems like okay, that makes sense. Um, so if we're thinking about governance in the context of ESG, is it is the rise in importance around governance really just a 
you know, maybe a consequence of stakeholders just looking for more transparency and how a company is executing on its initiatives and governing those initiatives? Yeah, exactly. Uh, governance has long been a focus uh, for stakeholders, uh, and that's to no one's surprise. In fact, a lot of the key focus areas from years ago are still relevant to stakeholders today. As you alluded to, stakeholders today are increasingly asking for more transparency. Uh, they're expecting more in terms of how governance gets done and how that governance is communicated to them. So, so why are investors wanting this transparency? Like, why is it so important to them? What, what are they hoping to gain from this? The simple answer uh, to that question is that strong corporate governance gives investors confidence in the way an organization is being run. It provides confidence that the board and others tasked with governance are focused on sustainability and ethics and other issues that matter to investors and doing so in a transparent way. Investors and other stakeholders, for that matter, want to ensure that an organization's corporate governance uh, positions it for long-term success uh, through mitigating and leveraging risk for long-term competitive advantage in the marketplace. So a significant piece of governance is a company's board of directors. So can you expand on what a company focuses on when it comes to their board composition? Sure, I can take that one. So when it comes to board composition, we really are talking about how your board is structured and assembled. Uh, so the composition of your board of directors can include things such as gender diversity, racial diversity, other underrepresented minorities, industry experience, and director tenure. Additionally, board composition includes committees that are made up of board members. So some of the committees to consider when you're composing your board could be like the audit committee, mm -hmm. compensation committee, ethics and compliance committee, and maybe even establishing an ESG steering committee that will dictate uh, company's ESG goals and the steps to take on the path towards achieving those goals. So I assume it's fair to say that not all boards are going to be created equal. So what are some ways board composition may vary from company to company? Yeah, so board composition is going to vary by company and by industry. For example, certain industries may require certain members on the board to provide a, a specific skill set or expertise uh, that, that's needed by that organization that may not be necessarily relevant to the board composition and other, other types of companies. Uh, so while there is a focus often on the makeup of the board from a DEI, and that means diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective, it's equally important to also have the relevant skill sets uh, that boards are expected to have given the dynamic world we live in today, uh, especially with ever-changing corporate risk. So what about board engagement? What do stakeholders look for as it relates to how active and present a company's board might be? Yeah, so when it comes to board engagement, we're really talking about the broader approach to managing the company. Uh, this can include making decisions like agreeing on defining ESG as it relates to your company, like asking yourself, what are the implications to us? Um, defining the ESG importance to the company. How, what does it matter to us and, and our stakeholders? Addressing material ESG risks and opportunities uh, and then setting the, the relevant data metrics to ensure you're providing your stakeholders what's truly important and relevant to them. 
integrating ESG into the fibers of the operations of the company should be a, a crucial thing to consider, right? Where decision-making at any level will account for ESG considerations. Uh, so not only will this impact board, CEOs, and other executives, but also at a staff level, you know, they can think about ESG as they're making any decision. So a couple of things you talked about uh, was around, you know, the board's experience and skill sets being just as equally as important when you're thinking about who to who to put on your board or who you might need to bring into the board itself. And, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense when we think about like what a board today is having to deal with versus a board 10 years ago, like the risks to the business and the societal risks and the global risks are just completely different, right? You know, what was on the agenda at one point isn't going to look anything, you know, close to what boards are dealing with today. Can you talk maybe a bit though about how a board you know, navigates through all the new risk management in today's climate. I mean, things are just, there's all sorts of new things being thrown at boards, you know, that they may not have that that depth of experience around. What can they do to help manage risk? Yeah, so so, so one of the big things for boards is to, to account for enterprise level risks, right? So enterprise risk management or ERM, this is where they'll identify them at a higher level and set the approach for managing those risks and setting measures to mitigate them. Uh, each company is going to be different, and each company is going to have its own mix of ESG issues, uh, which are going to be varied based on industries and, and the sectors that those companies are in. Just to give a few examples of these risks, would be things like business continuity, crisis management, cybersecurity, human resources, controls. Uh, and given today's landscape, it's pretty safe to say that it's crucial for companies to aim to identify all potential risks and try to mitigate against them. And just one big example of it uh, is the pandemic, the recent pandemic, right? Um, it caught a lot of companies off guard. So it's, it's very important for companies to look at risks in the future. And even if you don't think it's gonna happen, have some sort of mitigating measure around it. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's helpful advice for sure. Um, if we're kind of tying this back into ESG and ESG initiatives and strategies, does the oversight of a company's kind of ESG practices, does it really reside solely with the full board? Or are there other ways companies can maybe, you know, achieve their ESG goals or initiatives and, you know, have accountability for delivering on that within the organization? There are alternative ways that boards can delegate some of the responsibility of oversight as it relates to ESG. Obviously, board oversight of ESG issues can reside with the full board, but also oversight of ESG issues can reside with an existing board committee or even, uh, you know, more and more we're seeing this with newly formed dedicated ESG committees. Um, as even another option, it can also be shared by both the full board and one or more committees um, or be spread across multiple committees covering ESG issues that fall within their charter mandates uh, and areas of expertise. Companies may also use a combination of these approaches, so really a number of different ways that these responsibilities can be organized. Notably, even absent a process to allocate ESG oversight responsibilities, existing board committees often already oversee some ESG-related matters uh, or some components of them. Uh, most companies will still state that their board retains ultimate oversight over ESG issues, uh, which is accurate. Uh, even if the board has delegated various issues to one or more uh, committees, in many cases, oversight of ESG issues does not neatly fit into a particular category and is really more of a hybrid approach. Uh, and that approach may evolve over time. So 
how could, you know, a company's maybe senior management team thinking about the C-suite, CFO, or even the chief accounting officer, what, what could they do to help support the board and its efforts to provide oversight over um, ESG initiatives? Yeah, so we think as ESG issues become more prominent, um, the role of the CFO and the CAO will also become increasingly critical in how companies are positioned to compile and report their ESG data. So the CFO and CAO in combination with their accounting and finance teams um, really act as the reporting gatekeepers. And so it just makes sense that their roles now are expanding to more than just reporting financials. Um, ESG reporting needs to be translated into finance language and financial metrics um, or something similar. And so the CFO is uniquely positioned to do this because they already have experience compiling and reporting on metrics to stakeholders and shareholders. CAOs and CFOs also have extensive experience in other forms of regulatory and compliance filing. So again, um, just driving home the point that they really are positioned really well to kind of own the ESG reporting um, and compiling the data. Um, Also, finance and accounting departments are critical for companies to track and compile information needed for ESG strategies and reporting. So they already see data on sales, they already see data on supply chain, um, customers, and other types of information that can really help assess ESG performance. Um, They already work cross-functionally in their roles. And so this puts them in a great position to lead an organization's ESG reporting and data management programs. Um, which ultimately will help the board ensure that goals and objectives are being measured and that progress is being achieved on the ESG front. So a lot of companies focus on ethics and compliance as core values of their business. Uh, How does that relate to and play with ESG matters? Ethics and compliance is a, is a huge component of governance uh, and really a huge component of ESG more broadly. Uh, some of the areas, and really just like maybe a couple areas to consider from an ESG standpoint, and when I say from an ESG standpoint, I'm, I'm speaking about ESG from a strategy perspective, from a policy and procedure perspective, uh, and, and also uh, from a disclosure perspective. So a couple of things to, to think about there. Uh, first, establishing policies around uh, acceptable behavior, unacceptable behavior. Uh, oftentimes, that takes the form of a code of business conduct or a code of ethics of some kind, um, but there are a number of different mediums um, that companies will use to to establish that. Um, but that'd be one thing. Uh, another thing that I would say here in terms of areas to consider around ethics and compliance, uh, it's training. Um, it's implementing training around ethics and compliance uh, that covers some really important topics uh, that are related, such as corruption, anti-money laundering, bribery, fair competition. There's a number of other issues um, that kind of fall within that umbrella. Uh, this type of training can be just a very critical tool uh, in terms of mitigating the risk associated with uh, some of these ethics and compliance issues. So in the introduction, you alluded to this idea of supply chain. And I think all of us, especially living through 2020, the toilet paper shortage that we all experienced and endured, understand now more than ever how important supply chain issues truly can be and the the long-term effects of that. So when it comes to supply chain issues and ESG, can you expand on what companies are actually focusing on here? Sure. So the ESG criteria provides a guideline for environmentally friendly 
socially acceptable and ethical supply chain activities. Now, because we're dealing with outside stakeholders, it's fair to say that ESG is as much an external guideline as it is an internal one. Um, to manage ESG-related risks around supply chain activities, companies need to have visibility, traceability, and transparency into their supplier operations. Now, when companies are developing a supply chain strategy or procurement or sourcing strategy, they must keep an ESG focus in the forefront of that decision-making. Uh, some of the things to take into consideration when making those decisions can be looking at things like child labor, conflict minerals, modern slavery, human trafficking, uh, corruption and bribery. These are just a few of the things that should be considered. Um, now, these are important, thing, important things to actively look at because you have to make the tough decision whether to do business with certain suppliers, right? Especially if they're violating or they're not aligning with your ESG strategy from an ethical standpoint, even if it's cheaper to go with one supplier than another. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. But like when I think about, I guess, the, the modern supply chain world, especially with like global supply chains and how complex of a web those can be, does it make it really challenging to get that transparency, that visibility that you're looking for to evaluate that your your supply chain is in line with your your company's ESG goals, values, et cetera? Yeah, there's definitely a challenge there. So with a globalized supplier base, it can be difficult to have that visibility into their operations, uh, especially like your direct suppliers, right? If you take it one step further, it can be even more difficult to have visibility into your supplier's suppliers. This is where you start introducing the different tiers, right? Tier one versus tier two, suppliers you do direct business with versus those that you do indirect business with, uh, such as those further down the supply chain pipeline. Uh, it's important to have really good relationships with these suppliers to ensure you have that good transparency to be able to mitigate those challenges that come with the global supplier base. Yeah, so you mentioned like good relationships and then maybe that's, that's part of a, a strategy that a company will you know, utilize to help ensure that their supply chains that they interact with align with their goals. But maybe what are some other like strategies you you've either seen or you you've read about, you know, that companies are doing to help help mitigate this this challenge? Yeah, companies can use a variety of different strategies, but we do see a few that work consistently well. So um, first off, big focus on supplier transparency. So this is one of the most crucial components of an effective supply chain ESG program. Um, it's critical when we think about companies having access to credible data, and it helps responsible sourcing managers conduct informed decision-making when onboarding their new suppliers. Transparency can be supported by sending out supplier questionnaires around ESG compliance and or ESG strategy. Um, also performing site visits and ensuring that your suppliers are doing the same things that you are in order to capture um, good data and ensure all around compliance. Uh, also, companies should prioritize high quality data that's sourced from the ground. So that assessment data really needs to be granular and conducted at the factory level to ensure it's verified and really promotes a holistic view of a company's supply chain, not just what's coming from their corporate office. Um, additionally, companies like Fabian mentioned, I think Adam, you mentioned it too, companies just need to build relationships with all parties in the supply chain. So from vendors to suppliers, messaging really needs to be conveyed consistently across the board to guarantee that everyone's aligned with the company's sustainability efforts and expectations. 
Um, and then measure the cost of ownership. So what are your compliance costs as it relates to these responsibility programs in order to measure return on investment and really channel your efforts for impactful change? And then finally, an ESG uh, program needs to align with sourcing and procurement. So making sure those common goals are established and communicated across the organization effectively and across the supply chain. So in today's cultural climate, political involvement or lack thereof, uh, companies' contribution funding or even their lobbying efforts are under extreme scrutiny. So can you talk about how this impacts a company and their ESG efforts? Yeah. So in today's market, companies are, particularly public companies, are a large source of political funding because public policy has a very significant impact on those companies' operations and then their overall long-term success. Uh, That being said, it's important for companies to consider how they're handling political contributions uh, and political contribution activities, whether it's through contributions from corporate funds or establishing organizations that are made up of their employees. Companies need to ensure that they're being transparent with how they're handling these activities. So one of the ways that companies can consider showing this transparency and this visibility into their activities is through publicly disclosing contributions to political parties, political candidates, trade associations, and as you mentioned, uh, lobbying organizations. Uh, In addition to this, companies can also also consider participating in third-party measuring systems, such as the Zicklin Index, which is uh, put together by the Center for Political Accountability. Uh, This is a questionnaire on the visibility and transparency around a company's political activity, which rates the company based on that transparency. Uh, I would also encourage companies to consider designating either a specific board committee or an executive uh, who reports to the board to oversee that company's political activity to make sure that they're in compliance with all laws and regulations around it. All right. I think... We've, we've done a pretty good job of covering governance. I know there's plenty we could dig into there, um, but just for the sake of, of moving the conversation along, can uh, someone explain broadly what we mean when we say social, the, the S and the ESG? What are some common topics that fall under the social category? Sure. So I think there's a lot of categories that could fall under social, but some of the most common um, issues that we see are around fair treatment of employees um, and workers, including paying fair wages. Mm -hmm. Another topic is um, a company's investment in employees' skills, uh, training initiatives or training requirements, and people development so that um, people can really develop and achieve higher mobility. Um, Diversity, equity, and inclusion matters uh, are obviously a huge focal point under the S in ESG. So, what companies are doing in the DEI space um, matters a lot to a lot of stakeholders. Another key area is the creation of products or services that contribute to the betterment of society as a whole and improve the communities that they serve. Um, and then finally, there's there's a growing sentiment that uh, companies need to take a stand on social issues. So um, not only from it, that's that's not coming only from their own employees, but also customers. Um, sometimes expect them to take stands on social topics that go well beyond the operations of the business. And some of those are comical. You know, I think I got upwards of 25 to 50 emails from different companies using the phrase unprecedented times back when COVID first rolled out. They all had to, but it is important. They all wanted to share their sentiments and 
um, it was nice to get all of those emails about feeling comforted in my unprecedented times, but very pleased to be back in more precedented times. <laughs> um, so how do social factors impact an organization's business? Sure. So uh, several social factors can have really significant, uh, both long and short-term impacts on a company's operations and their financial performance for that matter. So uh, just to kind of step through a, a handful of them, um, workforce requirements and composition. So for example, labor strikes or consumer protests, uh, those can directly affect a company's profitability by uh, by creating scarcity of skilled employees uh, or controversy that's damaging to a to a corporation or organization's reputation. Um, another uh, would be safety concerns. So um, corporations that ensure their products and services do not pose safety risks and or minimize the exposure of geopolitical conflict, for example, in their supply chains tend to face less volatility uh, in their businesses. Um, one other uh, that I'd mentioned here, uh, customer changes in demand. So um, there are complex social dynamics at play. Uh, there's you know, surges in online public opinion, physical strikes, uh, company boycotts by different groups. Uh, we've all heard um, about these things, uh, see these things in, in our world. And all of these affect long-term shifts in consumer preferences. Uh, and as they look forward, decision makers can consider these as important indicators of the company's potential. So, um, so all really important factors that can have significant uh, short and long-term impacts on uh, operations and financial performance. So with so many different factors, initiatives, and issues at play here, how are companies determining what to focus on as part of their social strategies? Yeah, so, so companies in collaboration with their board steering the ESG strategy uh, will often take an honest look at their business and recognize where they have strengths and weaknesses when it comes to ESG. Uh, from there, they can ask themselves where they can actually make impactful changes. If they don't know their vulnerability and their weak areas, critics are going to point it out as soon as they start talking about ESG and you're going to get criticized for it. So it's important to have a good pulse and a good grasp on what matters to your stakeholders. Now, as we talked about earlier during the intro to ESG, it's important for conversations to have uh, it's important for companies to have conversations with their stakeholders uh, to align each one's importance to ESG. And one of the ways we can do that is through establishing that matrix we chatted about. I've heard the phrase, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So what kind of metrics do you see companies tracking or developing as it relates to social matters? I mean, like Fabian said, I think it's just going to greatly depend on what matters um, to any individual company stakeholders. But Generally speaking, the, the social disclosures are going to include descriptions of HR initiatives like hiring and turnover, potentially broken out by gender or age. There's also usually some disclosures about the makeup of the workforce. Um, so gender diversity, racial or ethnic diversity in the total workforce, but also those breakouts within management or executive positions within the company. So when you start thinking about how many ways you can slice up the makeup of your workforce, you can see how it can get really extensive really quickly. Um, there's also some industry-specific disclosures that could fall into the social section. So in industries that have more workplace injuries, like oil and gas or manufacturing, um, you may disclose more health and safety metrics like injury rate or fatalities to um, show that your company maintains a high standard for safety and injury prevention. 
Um, but in industries like technology, you might break out gender and racial diversity of your workforce in STEM roles to show that your company is actively taking steps toward greater representation of females um, or racial minorities within those roles. And then finally, there's usually disclosures around uh, community engagement, like charitable giving, volunteering, and donations, which, you know, really just answer the question, like, what is your company and or your employees doing in the communities that they serve? And what's the greater impact there? So I also know that there's some existing rules that public companies have to follow that relate to human capital. You know, back in 2020, the SEC, um, as part of a bunch of amendments they made to Regulation SK, they included an element of human capital disclosures that were required. Um, So maybe for those that are listening that aren't familiar with um, what those amendments included, can can you, one of you all, maybe just give a quick recap on what are those requirements that were introduced um, through those changes? Yeah, the, the regulatory stuff is the fun stuff, right? So uh, <laughs> the original provisions of uh, Regulation SK, which basically govern disclosures and filings outside of financial statements, were established a long time ago, more than 30 years ago. So in 2020, the SEC amended these provisions with the intent to improve readability on disclosures, reduce repetition, uh, and eliminate immaterial information. Uh, Now, this was done with the intent to simplify compliance for registrants and making disclosures more meaningful to investors. Uh, As part of those amendments, the SEC expanded disclosure requirements associated with human capital. Uh, Disclosure requirements were previously limited to the number of employees that a registrant has, and you'll see this in the 10Ks, right? They usually disclose the number of employees. Now, this was expanded to include human capital measures or objectives that management is focusing on in order to manage the business, including measures or objectives that address development, attraction, and retention of personnel. So the FTC additionally specifically noted that it did not adopt more prescriptive requirements because the exact measures and objectives included in human capital management disclosures may evolve over time and may depend and vary significantly uh, based on factors such as the industry, uh, the various regions or jurisdictions in which, it's regist- in which the registrant operates, uh, and general strategic posture of the registrant, as well as other conditions that affect human capital resources, such as national or uh, global health matters. Uh, now, all that being said, registrants must continue to disclose to the extent that it's material, the number of persons that they employ. So when I, I guess I think about all of those human capital disclosures that are required by the SEC, how does that maybe interplay with the company's broader like ESG efforts? Like how do the disclosures work together with that? Sure. Yeah. So as we saw, the SEC now requires companies to disclose human capital measures or objectives that management is focusing on to manage their business. Now, this can include different social metrics that management is already disclosing or will disclose as they establish their ESG strategy. Uh, And this is all going to be based on what's important to the company uh, and what's important to their stakeholders. All right. So uh, the company, if the company and the stakeholders emphasize diversity and inclusion, they can track metrics like gender or racial diversity, either in the total workforce or in leadership positions, as Caroline touched on earlier. Uh, They can track recruiting, turnover, or programs to create a a better work-life balance, and things of the sort. So really, it's about disclosing what's important to management management and their stakeholders from an ESG perspective around the people and how they're tracking these metrics to run their business. So what's maybe like a 
best practice for trying to figure out what is important to your stakeholders. You know, I think we, we mentioned previously, there's just so many things at play when it relates to social initiatives. So like, what does a company need to keep in mind when they're trying to figure out what is relevant, what is important for their business, you know, to their stakeholders, especially as things continue to change? Yeah, I think it's really just having this discussion. So if you're not already having this discussion, I think definitely start. You can also look at what's already being monitored. Um, That's probably what's important already to your company to track uh, against existing goals and initiatives. Um, So again, if you haven't started, I would just look at what you're already tracking and then develop a plan to really get uh, stakeholder input. No, that's helpful. We've talked in previous um, ESG podcasts around the reporting and, you know, pulling together the relevant metrics. And obviously central to all of this is the data you get to compile that information. Um, so maybe just in the context of like social initiatives reporting, um, what are some of the different data considerations to think about here um, that a company would need to, you know, build processes around or just, you know, upgrade systems, et cetera, to help meet their initiatives around social reporting? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, good data inputs are going to yield good data outputs. So you just want to make sure you have relevant, up-to-date information. Um, You can do this through employee questionnaires during the hiring process um, to support those workforce descriptions. Um, You can also make sure that you have up-to-date employee information by doing employee engagement surveys or other kind of periodic questionnaires where you're um, gathering updates to that uh, employee-specific information. As far as HR systems, companies can evaluate whether they have the capability to pull the right data at the right time. Um, So maybe creating custom reports for ESG reporting if needed. Um, Also, some of those health and safety metrics that we talked about, um, if you don't already have a kind of a solid system for tracking those incidents, um, I would would assume that most who who have those issues probably already have a way to track them. But just a good thing to keep in mind, um, do you have the ability to run reports and uh, create the, the calculations and metrics that, um, that you would need to report? And as always, these considerations should be seen through what stakeholders want to see. So you may need to connect with internal business partners across the organization, um, like HR, supply chain, and legal to ensure that you just have a consistent and efficient approach to um, supporting these metrics. Well, that, my friends, is a wrap on our ESG mini-series, although I hope the conversation doesn't stop here. Uh, This is not only a popular topic, but I think it's an important one, uh, one that has potential for long-lasting impacts on the world. So I think we all want to leave this place better than we found it. And I'm grateful for the strides we've all made as a society to measure and track and hold each other accountable to these changes. So. Thank you to our ESG guests, Fabian, Robbie, and Caroline, for sharing your time with us. And thank you all for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series. And it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.